Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to episode 80 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're talking about alien implants. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Akin. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. For decades, people have reported being abducted by alien beings, taken aboard their craft, and subjected to medical procedures. But skeptics have dismissed these claims as uncorroborated stories. In recent years, some of the reported abductees have discovered that they have inexplicable metal objects in their bodies, which they believe they received during the abductions. Surgeons have removed some of these objects and subjected them to laboratory analysis. Do they provide physical proof of alien contact? If so, what's their function? Are they for tracking, information gathering, or even control of the human subjects? That's what we'll be talking about on this episode of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. So, Jimmy, why aren't eyewitness accounts of UFOs enough? Why, why do we need this physical evidence like alien implants? For one, there have been a lot of hoaxers who have just made up accounts of UFO sightings and contact with aliens, either for attention or as a joke or to make money or for some other reason. And there are also people who are mentally ill and may have innocently told their stories, even though they're completely delusional. Other people have gotten only a brief glimpse of, you know, uh, UFOs, and they thought, you know, it was maybe something alien, but maybe they just misidentified a natural phenomenon like a star or a conventional aircraft or a piece of classified technology and thought it was something from another planet when it was totally from here. This is really easy to do. A number of years ago here in San Diego, the Japanese electronics corporation Sanyo had a blimp that they would fly around above the city for advertising purposes. And the blimp was white in color and it was lit from the inside. So at night, it looked like a glowing white oval in the sky. And once I saw it from far enough away that I couldn't see the Sanyo logo on it, I just saw the lighted oval in the sky at night. And I thought to myself, it would be so easy for a person to see that and not know it's the Sanyo blimp and think they'd seen an alien ship. So, you know, there are various problems with perception in these different accounts of UFOs. And there are also problems of memory because our memories don't work like cameras that ac accurately capture and preserve what we saw. Our memories change with time. And actually, the more we think about something that's happened, the more it tends to get rewritten. And all of these are reasons why eyewitness testimony is considered among the least reliable forms of evidence in court, despite what you might think. Um, and it's why physical evidence is of much more value if you can get it. So are, are alien implants the only kind of physical evidence that has been offered for UFOs? No, there are other kinds. The most familiar kind is photographic evidence, you know, stills and videos of UFOs. But there's been a long history of hoaxed photos and videos. Also, a lot of them are just blurry and who knows what it is. 
But there have been better sources of photographic evidence, including, for example, the Navy gun camera footage that we talked about in episodes 41 and 70 of Mysterious World. And we'll have an update on uh, some of that at the end of this show. So you want to stick around and listen to Mysterious Feedback and Mysterious Headlines for an update on that Navy UFO footage. There have also been what are called UFO trace cases where UFOs have left physical evidence behind. These include impressions made in the ground or in the vegetation, as well as material that was either part of a UFO or that a UFO expelled. The Betty and Barney Hill abduction case that we talked about in episodes 61 and 62 was an example of that. They had physical traces uh, as a result of their encounter, and some of those have later been analyzed. And we'll be talking about other trace cases in the future. Then there are also cases where a UFO has had a physical impact on a person. We talked about some cases like that that occurred in Brazil, and we discussed them in episode 74. Also, some alleged abductees have reported finding unusual impressions on their bodies, which are sometimes referred to as scoop marks, Mm. because even though they're sealed over by skin, it looks like something was scooped out and then rapidly healed. Ouch. Uh, Well, okay. in that case, then alien implants are nothing special then? Well, I wouldn't say that. They potentially could be a very valuable kind of evidence. Presumably, they would be functioning bits of alien technology. And if we could show that they are and, you know, that we don't know how to make this kind of technology, then that would demonstrate that there's something exotic. I mean, you know, think about if you sent an iPhone back 400 years in time, the people who found it wouldn't know what it was. And if they tore it apart, they wouldn't have any idea how it worked. But they could poke and prod and swipe at it enough to get it to wake up and reveal itself to be some kind of device. And in the same way, we might be able to determine if alien implants were actually advanced technology, even if we couldn't tell how they work or figure out how to reverse engineer them. Also, we now have scientific equipment that could potentially let us determine whether an object is from our solar system or from elsewhere. And we could use this technology that we have to evaluate the supposed alien implants. How would that technology work? Our solar system uh, condensed out of a nebula that was created by a supernova about, well, over four and a half billion years ago. When the supernova detonated, it created certain elements. For example, you need a supernova in order to create elements that are heavier than iron, which is element 26. Uh, You can make iron with stars that don't go supernova, but anything heavier than iron, got to have a supernova to make it. So, for example, if you have a wedding ring that is silver or platinum or gold, those being elements 47, 78, and 79, then the atoms in your wedding ring were made in a supernova. But supernovas don't just give rise to elements. They also give rise to different isotopes of elements and in certain ratios. So what's an isotope? An isotope is a variant of a chemical element that has a specific number of neutrons. There are three terms that scientists use to describe types of atoms. Uh, You probably heard them. They're element, ion, and isotope. There are also three kinds of particles that atoms are made of, uh, protons, electrons, and neutrons. The number of protons that an element has tells, or that an atom has, 
tells you what element it is. For example, if an atom has 92 protons, then it's the element uranium. The number of electrons that an atom has tells you what ion it is. Uh, oftentimes, an atom will have the same number of electrons that it has protons, so it'll be electrically balanced. You know, protons are positive and uh, electrons are negative, so for the atom to be balanced, it needs the same number. And a typical uranium atom would, if since it has 92 protons, it's also going to have 92 electrons. But atoms can lose or gain electrons, creating different ions of the atom. Finally, the number of neutrons tells you what isotope an atom is. For example, you may have heard of atoms like uranium-235 and uranium-238. Those are two different isotopes of uraniums. They both have 92 protons, which is why they're both uranium, but they have different numbers of neutrons, which is why one is called 235 and the other is 238. To put it simply, those numbers represent the total number of protons and neutrons that the atom has. So, like in the case of uranium-235, it has the 92 protons, it needs to be uranium, plus 143 neutrons for a total of 235. But uranium-238, it's got the same 92 protons to make it uranium, and it's got three extra neutrons, 146 of them instead of 143, so it's got a total of 238 protons and neutrons. Now, uranium decays over time. is It's radioactive, so it, it loses neutrons. But at present, almost all, uh, it's like 99% of the, of the uranium in the Earth's crust is uranium-238. Less than 1% of it is uranium-235. Less than one one-hundredth of a percent is uranium-234. And there's basically no uranium-236 or 233 on Earth. So if you had a device with uranium in it and the ratio was not 99% uranium-238, if it was some other ratio, let's say it had more 236 or 233 than we find on Earth, it would count as evidence towards the idea that it didn't come from Earth, that the uranium came from elsewhere and it was produced in a different supernova than the one that gave birth to our solar system. Okay. So that actually is a very good <laughs> review of high school chemistry or physics. So, and, and, thank and, thank and you. I, I do appreciate that because I, I, I think I forgot most of that after high school. So when, when did the first implants start to be discovered? I don't know when the very first ones were found, but I know that in his 1987 book, Intruders, UFO researcher Bud Hopkins described several cases where doctors had found them. So at least by the 1980s, UFO researchers were starting to learn about them, and the abductees themselves may have been aware of them significantly sooner. Can you give an example of an abductee who later found an implant? Yeah, we'll look at the case of a woman called Patricia, which is a case history described in a book by Dr. Roger Lear on alien implants. In 1969, Patricia and her family lived in a small rural area of the state of Texas. She was 23 years old and married to John, a caring man with a very strong personality. They were the parents of two boys, Michael, six years old, and Billy, five. John had been hard at work for months without a break, and Patricia felt they were due for time away from the daily routine. She also didn't have much more time left for a vacation since she was eight months pregnant. 
So they decided to go on a fishing trip, as you do, and they selected a spot based on a recommendation from one of John's friends. This was the spot John's friend had talked about. It was an old wrought iron bridge that crossed a beautiful stream and had a rich Civil War history. The Confederate Army had built it as part of its supply route. They made camp under the bridge and they used the stream for fishing. On the first night of the campout, the children saw some lights in the sky and discovered that they could signal with flashlights and the lights would flash the same pattern back to them. When they told their parents, John and Patricia got bigger flashlights and discovered they could do the same thing. The lights in the sky would signal back with exactly the same pattern. Then on the second day of the campout, after a fish dinner, Patricia escorted the boys to the tent and tucked them in for the night. John puffed on his pipe and talked about his plans for the next day, to get up early and hike downstream to a spot where his friends said some of the biggest fish ever caught in the region had been taken. For that reason, they decided to retire early. John checked the fire one last time. It was well stocked with slow-burning wood and would probably still be going when they, when they arose in the morning. Suddenly, at about 1 a.m., Patricia was awakened by her terror-stricken husband, who loomed over her like a huge giant, silhouetted in the reflection of the firelight. He pointed a finger at her and said, Get up right now and throw the kids in the car. His voice was gruff and demanding. Patricia's heart pounded and her mind raced. She wondered what could possibly be so wrong to cause her husband to act like this. She quickly got out of her sleeping bag and put on her shoes. They got everyone in the car, and John started driving frantically away from the campsite. When Patricia asked him what was happening, he said that something had been with them under the bridge, but it wasn't a person, and it wasn't an animal. As they flew down the highway, a bright light started to follow them and grew brighter. At some point, Patricia ordered John to stop the car, and he did. The light was now gone, and they realized that the car was pointed in the wrong direction. They had been driving away from the campsite, but now they were pointed back toward it. As they approached the campsite, Patricia was aware that something was wrong. The first thing she noticed was that the campfire was out except for the red glow of the ashes. She thought, this is impossible. John made that fire to last all night. So they may have experienced missing time. They collected their belongings from the site and decided to drive home. They broke off their camping trip. On the way home, another light, a greenish one, followed them for several miles, alarming Patricia and John, but then it vanished, and they made it home by 7 a.m. A year later, in 1970, Patricia had another experience when she woke up at 3 a.m. Patricia became aware of a strange greenish light shining on the bed. She turned her head and looked around. The light came from outside the bedroom window and filled every part of the room. Her free will seemed to disappear, and her body would no longer respond to her commands. She thought, what in heaven's name is happening to me? She tried to turn and wake up her sleeping husband, but found that she could not move her body. After some time had passed, Patricia gained control over her body again. She turned her head and saw that somehow she was in a gigantic room. The surroundings appeared to be made of glistening chrome. She was sitting on some sort of table, and all around her were strange beings. To this day, she cannot remember what they looked like. She gazed about the room. The only part of her body she couldn't move were her hands, which were being held by the beings standing beside her. Her eyes fixed on three huge transparent cylinders, apparently composed of clear glass, which she estimated to be about 18 feet tall. 
The experience of being in the strange room continued for a while. The next thing Patricia recalls is being back in her bedroom, lying next to her husband. She called out once again, John, please wake up. John sat up straight, a horrified expression on his face. He turned to Patricia and said, what's going on here? And where's that green light coming from? Before Patricia had a chance to respond, the room was filled with a humming sound which seemed to come from outside and above their house. The greenish light began to fade and then the room was dark again, with only the faint glow of the alarm clock remaining. And that was the end of the experience. So what do you make of Patricia's experiences? They're certainly dramatic, but it's hard to say. Uh, One of the good things about this account is that none of these experiences were remembered by hypnotic regression. They are all things that Patricia says she has conscious memories of. And that's good because hypnosis is not a good tool for memory retrieval. It promotes confabulation, as we discussed in episode 52 on hypnosis. But many of the things that she and John experienced could have been purely natural. In the 1969 camping experience, the lights in the sky that they exchanged signals with could have been helicopters from a nearby airbase with some hotshot pilots having fun, uh, you know, flashing back to people on the ground. In fact, that's what John thought they were at the time. John may have dreamed that something strange was under the bridge with him, prompting him to wake everybody up and get him in the car. The bright light that initially followed them on the road could have been a vehicle or a star or a helicopter. They could have gotten the car turned around in the darkness and confusion without realizing it, especially if they went on a curving side road and thus ended up pointing back at the campsite. And they may have only been gone the few minutes that Patricia thought, meaning that there was no missing time and, you know, the fire had just burned down for some other reason and wasn't going as much as she thought it should be. In the 1970 experience, Patricia may have woken up and had sleep paralysis, which is a common experience. We'll talk about it in the future. I've, I've had it myself. So waking up and feeling like you can't get your body to do what you want it to is not at all unusual. And then the strange room that she found herself in might have just been a dream. When she did wake up, the humming sound that she and John heard could have been imagination or a passing vehicle or a passing aircraft. The harder element to explain is the green light, because once she and John woke up, he saw it too. It could have been something shining through the window, but... You know, conventional vehicles and aircraft don't normally have green lights capable of illuminating a bedroom when they go by. And if it was a normal light, you know, say car headlights shining through green curtains, they wouldn't have thought the color of the light was odd because it would happen all the time because they had green curtains in their bedroom, which they apparently didn't. So there are a lot of natural explanations for the things that uh, Patricia experienced. Although, of course, she and John could also be hoaxers. Right. And that's why the two alien implants Patricia later discovered in her big toe are significant. So how did she discover these implants? According to Dr. Lear, she discovered them when she stepped on a sliver and went to the doctor to have it removed. He x-rayed her foot and noticed what he thought were two pins in her left big toe. He asked her when she'd had surgery and didn't believe her when she denied that she'd ever had an operation on her foot. There was no scarring and no indication that it had ever been cut open or that objects had been introduced into it. When she later heard about implants, she remembered her dream and suspected that this was how she had gotten the strange objects in her toe. 
So this was conjecture on her part, but a chance event had led her to have a foot x-ray that showed these two unusual metal things in her big toe. She hadn't had foot surgery before, hadn't known about them, and eventually she heard about alien implants and wondered if that's what these were. So were these things in her toe ever investigated? Yeah, her case came to the attention of a UFO researcher in Texas named Daryl Sims, and he began discussing it when he appeared at UFO conventions. At one such convention in 1995, he met Dr. Roger Lear, a podiatric surgeon from Thousand Oaks, California, and told him about the case. Dr. Lear was also a member of the Mutual UFO Network, or MUFON, and he was intrigued enough that he was willing to surgically remove the objects in Patricia's foot so that they could be scientifically studied. This was a key meeting uh, between Sims and Lear uh, because it led to Dr. Lear becoming the most prominent physician involved in implant extractions. Let's talk about Dr. Roger Lear then. Who was he? He was born in San Francisco in 1935, and in 1964, he qualified as a podiatrist. Uh, later, he joined MUFON and became a UFO researcher. While other physicians have performed implant extractions, Lear was involved with more surgeries than anyone else, at least as far as is publicly known. All told, he was involved in surgeries that remove 18 objects from 17 patients, and the discrepancy why 18 if only 17 patients? It's because Patricia had the two objects in her toe. Lear authored several books related to UFOs. One, uh, which is the one we've been quoting from, is currently published under the title Casebook Alien Implants, and we'll have a link to it in the show notes. He was frequently interviewed on Coast Coast AM and participated in several documentaries on the subject. The final one was a documentary called Patient 17, about the 17th surgery patient, and we'll have a link to that documentary as well. This one was by Jeremy Corbell, the same guy who made the Bob Lazar and Skinwalker Ranch documentaries that we discussed in episodes 22 and 36. The surgery on Patient 17 took place in 2014, and while they were waiting on the lab analysis after the surgery, Dr. Lear passed away from heart attack. He was just a few days shy of his 79th birthday. Uh, one other note, some of the lab tests that Lear had run on the objects were paid for by the National Institute for Discovery Science, or NIDS. Uh, you may remember that name. It's a group that was active in the 1990s and that was founded by Bob Bigelow, who is a former owner of Skinwalker Ranch and who has had involvement with the ATIP Navy UFO program. If Dr. Lear was a podiatric surgeon, did all of the implant surgeries he performed deal with objects found in people's feet? No, and it's worth talking about the fact that he was a podiatric surgeon because I've seen people mock him about this. For example, Penn and Teller have an episode of their program BS where they just heap scorn on Dr. Lear as a foot doctor. I don't think they're being fair, though, because Lear only removed objects if they were found in people's feet, which is something he was fully qualified to do. In the case of objects found elsewhere in the body, Lear organized teams that had a supervising surgeon, like, you know, a general surgeon, who did the actual removal. Uh, Lear did what he was qualified to do, and he arranged for qualified surgeons to do the others, so that's entirely on the up and up. Also, Lear took elaborate precautions to protect the chain of evidence. Once an object was extracted, 
He rigorously documented the chain of custody. He had multiple witnesses sign documents when he put the objects into protective containers. He put protective seals on the containers. Whenever the objects were removed from the containers, he again had multiple witnesses sign to attest to what was being done with them. And he had all of these steps filmed so that there would be a video record. Then he sent the objects to independent labs for analysis, and he frequently made sure that the labs were blind, meaning that the people testing them didn't know what they were looking at or where they had come from, so it couldn't skew their results. So he was really quite professional about this. I think it's unfair to mock him because he was a foot surgeon. The fact is there aren't many physicians willing to do this kind of UFO-related work, much less to report the results to the public. And it just happened that he was a member of MUFON, so he was interested and willing to work on it. But he stuck to his own area of expertise. Uh, He brought in qualified people to do the other things. He documented the chain of custody, and he let independent experts test the objects and say what they were made of. So I don't see anything to mock here. Sometimes we should have a discussion about whether we, as a society or a culture, should take seriously reports of, of alien activity and whether it's right to mock them or to study them seriously and and that sort of thing. I think that would be an interesting discussion at some point we could have uh, mm-hmm. in some venue. So, yeah. so let's talk about the, the objects themselves then. Where were they found in the body? They were found in a variety of locations, the feet, the back of the hand, under the chin, in the chest, in the outer part of the ear. Uh, so a lot of different places. And what were the objects themselves like? Well, let's quote from an article that Dr. Lear wrote just before his death. We'll go, you and I will go back and forth so I can comment on some of his findings. He listed 15 characteristics that the objects tend to have. One, no inflammatory or rejection reaction by the body to these foreign objects. In his book, Lear made a big deal about this. He was very surprised when he sent tissue that had surrounded the objects to pathology labs for analysis, and the labs reported that the tissue did not have inflammation. Uh, He explains, It is impossible to have a foreign substance enter the human body without having the body react to that substance. Our system of defense is designed to ward off any invading substance, providing the body with the protection it needs. The results of this defense is inflammation. So it was very unusual to find tissues surrounding these foreign bodies weren't inflamed, but that wasn't the only odd thing they found. Two, no visible portal of entry. This is significant because if you have a foreign body in your object, whether it was inserted there deliberately or got there accidentally, you'd expect there to be a scar. But Lear and his colleagues used magnifying glasses and could not find scars near these objects. Three, Collections of specialized nerve endings surrounding the object. In his book, Lear explains, Another shocking finding was the large amount of nerve proprioceptors found within the tissue sample. There was no anatomical need for these specialized nerve cells to be clustered around a foreign body housed deep within the confines of a toe next to a bone. Usually, these tiny specialized nerve cells are only found in surface areas such as the fingertips. They serve to conduct sensations such as pressure, temperature, or fine touch to the brain. Another area where proprioceptors are found is on the bottom of the foot. These serve to send messages through the spinal cord to the muscles, resulting in our ability to walk. I couldn't imagine what purpose these nerves would serve deep within the soft tissues of the toe. 
However, they did explain the pain reactions that our patients had during their operations, despite the large amount of anesthesia they received. That's something else Lear mentions. Even though his patients were anesthetized, they would have notable pain reactions once the surgeon started probing the objects themselves, even when they shouldn't. Lear thinks this was because of the unusual nerves around the objects, though I'm a little surprised if they were just proprioceptors. Proprioception is the sense that allows us to feel our body and what position it's in. It's different than nociception or the sense of pain, which is mediated by nociceptive nerves. Still, the weirdness didn't in there. The objects also had... Four, an outer coating of ceramic biological material. Lear thinks that this coating, which mixes biological with ceramic elements, is part of why the objects didn't produce inflammation. He thinks this layer was designed to protect the body from the inner object. Five, a metallic phase where inorganic metal becomes biological tissue. If I understand Lear correctly, this was an additional layer which blended metal with biological, with biological tissue, and so it might have also had a protective function. Six, the emission of radio waves, which are deep space frequencies in the FM band. Although this didn't happen for all of the objects, they found some of them were apparently broadcasting radio waves. And if so, that would definitely indicate that they were technological in nature. He also says the frequencies were suited for transmission into space, but that doesn't mean they were meant for that purpose, just that they could. 7. Electromagnetic fields in excess of 10 milligauss. That means that the objects were at least weakly magnetic, though I believe in the case of some objects, the magnetism was supposed to be stronger. 8. Composition of meteoric iron. As the name indicates, meteoric iron isn't from Earth. It typically comes to Earth when a meteor is big enough to survive the atmosphere and doesn't burn up and hits the Earth's surface. One of the ways you know you're dealing with meteoric iron is when you've got unusual combinations of elements or isotopes. The objects also had... 9. Rare earth metals such as U-236, a single isotope of uranium existing by itself, as well as elements such as iridium, which is very rare and hard to find in the Earth's crust. And now, despite their names, not all rare earth metals are actually rare, but U-236 is extremely rare. It is found only in trace elements in the Earth's crust, much, much, much less than, uh, than 1%. And so the presence of U-236 is very notable. 10. Non-terrestrial isotopic ratios indicating the involved elements did not come from this Earth. This one's self-explanatory. If the elements had non-terrestrial isotope ratios, then that itself suggests that they weren't from Earth. 11. The existence of carbon nanotubes, carbon nanostrands, and carbon nanofibers. We'll come back to this point in the reason section because it's an extremely significant claim if it's true. 12. Gold spheres which have an as yet unknown function. So not a lot to say about that one. 13. Metallic caverns that are no larger than the diameter of one atom. I'm not sure what he means by this. I would suppose that he means atom-sized gaps in the crystalline structure of a piece of metal. I wish he'd said more about this because I'm not certain what he means or why it would be significant. 14. Resistance to ordinary cutting techniques such as metallic sawing or severing with a cutting instrument. One of our specimens had to be cut with a laser. This is something you might expect since ca carbon nanotubes are among the strongest things we've invented. 
structures like that might well be difficult to cut through. 15. There are also a number of unknown structures with the electron microscope seen with the electron microscope which we do not understand. So, not a lot to say about those other than that they're weird. And are there other things to know about these objects? Well, there's certainly more things we can say, but I'd like to focus on the results that came back at the end of the Patient 17 documentary, even though Dr. Lear didn't live to see the full results. The object that was taken out of Patient 17's leg contained 36 elements, including rare earth elements. It had a lot of metals, more than most industrial alloys typically have. One of the experts they interviewed said that most complex alloys have maybe five metals or oxides, but this had 36. The metals included gallium, germanium, and palladium. Another metal was yttrium, which is used in superconductors, and iron was the most prominent, and the object was estimated to be 25% meteoric iron. The isotope ratios were similar to terrestrial ones, but they were off enough that some of the experts thought they were non-terrestrial. In particular, the ratio between zinc-64 and zinc-66 was off. Also, many of the elements were toxic, which might be a good reason to shield the body from the object with an outer protective layer. So before we get into our theories about this, I do want to stop and take a moment to thank our patrons who make this show possible, including uh, Armand P., Teresa C., Susan B., Sandra C., and... Donna K. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World and all the shows at StarQuest. And you can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. And I'm very grateful that uh, our patrons allow us to talk about these interesting subjects like alien implants. So let's, uh, let's continue on with the theories. What theories are there about these objects? Well, one group of theories is that, that they're entirely natural. They could be just random foreign objects that got inserted into people's bodies by accident, you know, like stepping on something. I mean, that's how Patricia discovered the two metal things in her toe was when she stepped on a sliver of wood or something and had an x-ray. The objects also could have been inserted into people as part of a hoax or fraud or due to mental illness. And the strange coatings that they had could have been generated by bodily processes. And instead of an ordinary inflammation process, maybe the body did something else to try to shield itself. If the objects are technological in nature, then we need to ask where the tech came from. Uh, it could be terrestrial technology, extraterrestrial, or something else. And also, uh, if they're technological, we need to ask, what's the purpose of the technology. It could be for purposes of tracking or data collection or behavior modification. So what can we say about these objects from the faith perspective? Not a lot, though if it turned out that they were technological, we'd have to evaluate the morality of whatever their purpose is. Also, if it turned out they were extraterrestrial technology, then that would be evidence that aliens or at least not all aliens, are demons, because demons don't typically use technology. They can do stuff directly. I mean, you could say that a demon is using technology just to be extra tricky, but if you use that standard, you could explain every single encounter you have in life as a, with anybody as a demonic encounter. So since you could always say that appearances to the contrary, it's just a demon being tricky. 
at some point you have to say sometimes a cigar is just a cigar (laughs) and and appearances are what they indicate appearances indicate what you think they do so then let's talk about the reason perspective what can we say about these objects from the reason perspective well, let's start with uh, Lear's credibility, since he's a key figure in this. We've already mentioned that I don't think he should be mocked on the grounds that he was a podiatric surgeon. If you want to attack his credibility, you need to find other grounds. And and so have other people proposed other grounds to attack his credibility? I've seen a couple of criticisms that have been made. One is based on the fact he initially had a partnership with the Texas UFO researcher Daryl Sims, but they later had a falling out and dissolved their partnership. In his book, Lear writes, One of the major postoperative developments has been my separation from Daryl Sims as a working partner. There comes a time when differences of opinion begin to impede the progress of any partnership, and this is what happened to us. I don't see how it harms Lear's credibility here. I mean, you could equally well say Sims was the one at fault, if anybody was at fault. And frankly, absent further information about the particulars, I don't see how it hurts either of their credibilities. I mean, people do get into differences of opinion and go their separate ways. Happens all the time. And it doesn't mean that anybody's at fault or it's it certainly doesn't mean that you can just dismiss somebody's claims and arguments because they dissolved a partnership with someone. OK, what's the other proposal you've heard? It concerns a patient that Lear treated in 1990. In his book, in the year 2000, Lear gave his side of the story, saying, After I published a small early edition of this book, I received notice from the California Medical Board that a patient had registered a complaint against me. I went on to learn that this complaint had been filed almost 10 years ago, and the board had sat on it for all those years without taking any action. In addition, I discovered that the patient had passed away from unrelated causes some five years ago. The hospital involved had closed its doors about seven years ago, and all the records were unavailable. I was going to have a hard time defending myself. This reminded me of what happened to Dr. John Mack, the Harvard psychiatrist, who published a book saying that he believed abductees were telling the truth about their experiences. A group of fellow professors tried to end his tenure and have his license revoked for what they said were, quote, unrelated reasons, end quote. I suspected I was now the object of a similar type of witch hunt. And that's not implausible. Ufologists really can get punished professionally. I know of another case where a professor at Temple University named David Jacobs had his job threatened because of his ufological work. So for the California Medical Board to revive a 10-year-old complaint or almost 10-year-old complaint after the patient is dead and the records is no longer available, I mean, that could be an attempt to punish Lear for publishing a book on UFO implants. Still, that's just his side of the story. So what's the other side of the story? Critics of Lear, and this includes Penn and Teller, cite the fact that in 1998, the California Medical Board gave Lear three years of probation for, quote, repeated acts of negligence, close quote. Now, that sounds really bad. Probation, repeated acts of negligence, you know, but think about what these terms mean. Probation doesn't mean the board considered him as having done something so bad that he needed to stop practicing. Probation is a period where you're being tested to make sure you're doing what you should. So the board didn't revoke his license. They let him keep practicing. They just wanted him to complete certain requirements to certify that he was doing things the way he should. 
Also, negligence doesn't mean actively harming someone. It means failing to do something that you should have. So what happened in this case? And does it have anything to do with Lear's work on implants? Well, I looked up the board's judgment online, and we'll have a link to it so you can read it for yourself. But basically, here's what happened. In 1990, a 65-year-old patient came to Lear and had surgery on his left foot. After the surgery, Lear saw the patient four times in the next two and a half weeks to monitor his progress after the surgery. It turned out that the patient developed an acute postoperative infection and Lear didn't catch it. He had put the patient on a course of antibiotics to prepare him for the surgery. And afterwards, when the patient said, this is, you know, I'm, this is still hurting, uh, he had the patient continue on the antibiotics afterwards. He also used hydrotherapy to treat the foot. That's basically where you, you soak your foot in hot water and so forth. And the patient reported having less pain. There was some more swelling, but there was less pain. So Lear thought the patient was improving. But when the patient's symptoms didn't resolve after two and a half weeks, he went elsewhere and the infection was discovered and he was treated, although there were some complications. Then, eight years later, the medical board files this case against Lear with the Board of Podiatric Medicine. And in 1999, they reached an agreement that put Lear on probation for three years. So here are the, quote, repeated acts of negligence, close, close quote, that Lear was charged with. They all concern the same patient, and they all concern what happened in the four visits the patient made to Lear in a two-and-a-half-week period after the operation. According to the accusation, as Lear monitored the infection, he should have done more to keep the pa then just keep the patient on antibiotics and use hydrotherapy. Specifically, the board said he should have performed additional diagnostic tests and referred the patient to a consultant. So that's it. With a single patient, he wasn't aggressive enough in treating an infection. He did treat it, but he didn't do additional tests and make a referral. After the agreement was reached with Lear, he successfully completed his three years of probation. He fulfilled all the requirements the board made, including taking a course about the spread of infections. And in 2002, he was restored to good standing as a podiatric surgeon. Now, whatever you may think of this, I don't see how it has any impact on Lear's credibility when it comes to his research on supposed implants. I mean, what does not treating a single infection as aggressively as you should have have to do with discovering foreign objects in people's bodies and sending them to labs for independent testing. The two seem to be quite unrelated. So I don't see how missing an infection or missing its severity in initially does anything to discredit his work with these objects. It doesn't establish a pattern of sloppiness or lack of professionalism or anything like that. Uh, yeah. Okay. So what do you what do you personally think of Lear's credibility on the subject of implants? Well, I always try to start by giving people the benefit of the doubt. And in reading Lear's book, I was impressed by his thoughtfulness and professionalness. I was uh, quite prepared to read the book and discover him to be a total kook, you know, like many in the UFO field. But he didn't come across that way. On the other hand, he did say some things in later years that I'm less sure about. We mentioned I don't understand some of the things he said in the article 
just that he wrote just before his death in 2014. But the article is short and the word count his editor gave him may have kept him from explaining further. So that could be why some of the things he says are unclear to me. Also, in the documentary Patient 17, he at one point says he thinks that the implants use scalar waves. Scalar waves are an unverified concept proposed by Nikola Tesla. Uh, they're supposed to be an exotic form of electromagnetic waves. But I can't give a big strike against Lear's credibility because he speculated that an exotic technology might use an unverified scientific principle. I mean, you'd expect exotic things to be based on stuff we don't fully understand. Otherwise, they wouldn't be exotic. Also, both the article and the suggestion he made in Patient 17 were, were done very late in his life, when he was almost 79. And so he could have had a cognitive decline uh, of some kind since he wrote his book in 2000. All right, so let's look at the theories about these implants. What about the proposal that they're just natural objects? Well, it's true that people do get random foreign objects embedded in their bodies all the time, especially in the, in the feet and the hands, since these are principal ways we interact with our environment. People also can insert things into their bodies deliberately as part of a hoax or fraud or due to mental illness. And our bodies can react to such objects with an attempt to protect itself against them, like the inflammation response or some other kind of response. All those are true, but they don't explain what's reported about these objects. They don't explain why there were no entry scars where the objects were inserted. Inserted. They don't explain why the labs reported the surrounding tissue as not having an inflammation response. And they don't explain why the labs reported there were unusual nerve clusters around them. That would could suggest they were interacting with our nervous with the patient's nervous systems in some way. Lear speculates they may have been using the patient's nervous systems as a source of chemical energy to run themselves. The objects also aren't things, or at least a source of energy. Uh, the objects also aren't things that you'd accidentally get stuck in you or that you might have access to and be able to stick in yourself. I mean, they're made of really weird stuff. When I heard about the presence of meteoric iron in them, I wondered if, you know, someone could have stepped barefoot onto a tiny meteorite and it got stuck in their foot. That also could explain why they had non-terrestrial isotopic ratios and, you know, weird elements like uranium-236. They could be meteorites from another solar system with extrasolar isotopic ratios because Objects from other solar systems do fall into ours, and we're starting to understand that better. You know, think of the Oumuamua object that swung through our solar system in 2017. And there's another object in it right now uh, called Borisov that came in on an ex from an extrasolar trajectory. So we're only beginning to discover extrasolar things falling through our solar system all the time. Maybe, you know, a little extrasolar meteorite hit the Earth and somebody steps on it. But having multiple people who report alien encounters all accidentally ending up with tiny meteorites in their bodies would be astronomically improbable. I mean, maybe one person steps on an extrasolar meteorite, but bunches of them who all have this other characteristic in common. And if the reports are accurate, these things aren't just meteorites. They're technological. Some of them are were apparently emitting FM radio waves, and they allegedly included carbon nanotubes 
nanostrands, and nanofibers. In his article, Lear has a parenthetical remark to explain the significance of this. He says, These entities were considered non-existent in nature, and many scientists made definitive statements that they could not be made in a laboratory. This has now been reversed as commercial products are being designed and made from this technology. Carbon nanostructures are now the strongest substance known to mankind. So if these objects really incorporate carbon nanostructures, they are clearly artificial and involve some kind of technology. So let's talk then about where the tech might have come from. The first option is it could be terrestrial, but it wouldn't be something that multiple delusional abductees would have had access to and been able to insert into their own bodies. It's not like you can go down to Walmart and buy one of these things and stick it in yourself. Alien implants on sale at Walmart. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Um, The bizarre elemental composition of these things makes that particularly unlikely. One of the experts in Patient 17 said that, like as we mentioned, said that uh, standard alloys have like five metals or oxides, and these have like 36, many of which are rare and toxic. And an ordinary person or especially a delusional person wouldn't easily get access to objects or be able to make objects like that. Also, the unusual isotopic ratios place them out of the reach of ordinary people. Now, I want to stress, and this is something I have not seen stressed in the literature on these, but it is entirely possible for us to change the isotopic ratios that are found in nature. So the mere fact these have weird ratios doesn't mean they didn't come from here. We can change isotopic ratios. That's how you make a nuclear bomb, for example. As we mentioned, 99% of the uranium on Earth is uranium-238. But uranium-238 is useless for making an atom bomb. You cannot make one with 238. What you need to make a bomb is 235, which is less than 1% of the uranium on Earth, and it's all mixed up in the 238. So in World War II, the scientists on the Manhattan Project had to come up with this laborious and time-consuming set of procedures to refine the naturally occurring ore, which is almost all 238, and find a way to extract the less than 1% of 235 it had in it in order to make bombs. That's why, in fact, uh, Japan didn't get bombed until August of 1945. It's because it took them that long to get enough of the stuff refined, and also some of it turned into plutonium, to make those bombs. So it is possible for us to to change naturally occurring isotopic ratios, but ordinary people can't do it. You need substantial tech if you're going to change isotopic ratios away from what's found in nature. And that means that uh, the fact these objects are, according to the labs, have unusual ratios, it doesn't prove that they're extraterrestrial in origin, but it does at least point to them not coming from here, even though we could make such ratios if we really wanted to. It's the the technology used to set, to change the isotopes. That's these nuclear centrifuges we're always worried that Iran is getting a hold of, right? 
That's that yes. sort of thing. Okay. Yeah, that's and, that's the purpose. And so, you know, if we're if the U.S. government's concerned that a big country like Iran may or may not have these things, that means they're really difficult to get a hold of in the first place. And therefore, you're not going to get yeah. one done at Walmart. OK, that's yeah. interesting. So if ordinary people could not have made these things, could industry or the government done, have done so? Yeah, but we don't have evidence of any industrial company making things like this. And so that would point to some kind of, if they are terrestrial, that would point to some kind of secret government program. But here's a problem again with the carbon nanotubes, because in his parenthetical remark in the article, Dr. Lear continues, The oldest of the objects with carbon nanostructures was in a specimen taken from one of our surgical patients which had been in their body for over 46 years, which was old enough to eliminate back engineering from UFO crash sites such as Roswell. So, yeah, we didn't have the ability to make carbon nanostructures 46 years ago. And if the objects contained them uh, that long ago, that's significant evidence for an exotic explanation that isn't just some secret government thing here on Earth, because we didn't have carbon nanotechnology that far back. Right. And that's 46 years prior to when Dr. Lear wrote that, which is even longer ago. Yes. Yeah. So so does that mean aliens? It could. There are other possibilities like interdimensionals or crypto terrestrials, but the apparently extraterrestrial isotope ratios would point in the direction of aliens. So what might these things be used for? Probably the same things we put similar devices in and on animals for. One of the key reasons we do that is to track animals' movements. For example, we put trackers on animals to study their behavior, like activity patterns and migratory behavior, and aliens might be interested in studying human activity patterns. Another reason we put trackers on animals is to be able to find them when we want them. Aliens thus might want to tag a human being that they plan to abduct repeatedly so they can find him when it's time for the next abduction. Another reason we put uh, devices on animals is to collect data. For example, we may want to collect data about the animal itself, like monitoring its health. Uh, for example, here's a description of Pet Pace's smart sensing dog collar. The Pet Pace collar uses non-invasive sensors to track temperature, activity, pulse, respiration, positions, calories consumed and burned, and heart rate variations, all the elements underlining your pet's overall health. It sends that data at 2, 15, or 30-minute intervals to an innovative health monitoring service that analyzes your pet's health profile and alerts you immediately when it detects any abnormalities. And aliens could be doing this same kind of thing to us. Uh, we're, we're or, alien pets. <laughs> yeah. Or you, sometimes we put devices on animals not to monitor the animal, but to monitor what's going on in the environment that the animal interacts with. For example, in the Cold War, the CIA had a project called Acoustic Kitty, where the, they sewed microphones into the ears of cats so they could use them to eavesdrop on Soviets. So the idea is you got the kitty wired for sound, you send it to where the Soviets are, you listen to what the Soviets are saying. But this project was abandoned in part because the cats wouldn't go where the CIA wanted them to. Have you met a cat before? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Finally, we also 
sometimes put devices in or on animals to modify their behavior. Thus, you can get a wireless invisible fence to put around your property along with a collar for your dog that will either make a warning vibration or a warning sound or send an electric shock to keep the dog from leaving your property and running into traffic and getting hurt or whatever, you know, basis. So that's why it's an invisible fence. It's, it's really a wire running around your the perimeter of your property. But when the dog collar gets near it, it warns the dog one way or another, don't go any further and thus modifies the dog's behavior. Also, as part of the CIA's MK Ultra Mind Control Project, they implanted dogs' brains with control devices. And here's how the New York Post described that. The pooches could be made to run, turn, and stop as scientists zap the reward center of their brains with electrical currents, according to the CIA papers, which were published in 1965. Quote, the specific aim of the research program was to examine the feasibility of controlling the behavior of a dog in an open field by means of remotely stimulated electrical stimulation of the brain, end quote, the document states. So aliens or whoever made these things could be using the implants to modify human behavior for some purpose. But we don't see strong evidence of behavior modification in the people who have implants. Uh, if the implants were controlling their behavior, they probably wouldn't be reporting them and having them taken out. Mm. So um, uh, if it's behavior modification, it doesn't look like it's particularly effective behavior modification in some of these cases. And it's, my guess would be it's not behavior modification at all. It's some kind of data collection or tracking system. So, Jimmy, what is your bottom line then on these alien implants? Well, Dr. Lear was absolutely convinced that these objects were deliberately implanted alien technology. In the article he wrote right before his death, he referred to them as the smoking gun that proves it. But I'm not as convinced. I don't think that Dr. Lear was lying. From what I can tell, he seemed quite honest. I also don't think that the independent labs that ran the tests were lying. In fact, in the Patient 17 documentary, they note that if you pay a lab to test materials in this way, it is a federal crime for the lab to knowingly misreport the results. But when Dr. Lear and the documentary makers would challenge the labs that tested the objects and the surrounding tissue, they would say things like, well, tests can be inaccurate and the body can respond in unusual ways and similar things that would leave the door open for a natural explanation. Thus, uh, the experts that Jeremy Corbell talked to in Patient 17 expressed different opinions. And at the end of the documentary, Corbell says he's not convinced and we need one way or the other and we need more testing. And, you know, that's a sentiment I can agree with. In order to get proof one way or the other, more testing needs to be done. Fortunately, uh, Dr. Lear wasn't the only person working in this field. So I'm sure further testing is being done by various individuals and hopefully will have new and more conclusive results in the future. So, Jimmy, just to be clear, the part that we're not convinced of is, is who put them in there. But we are pretty certain that these things are made up of these strange materials. Is that well, right? That that appears to be the case. But what's the significance of that? Are right. they really artificial or are they something else? Is there a natural explanation, like you stepped on a weird meteor? Or so 
So we know what they are. People do have these objects in their bodies and they are they do seem to be weird. The question is, are they artificial or not? And if they're artificial, who put them there and why? Okay, so the the how and why is the real big open question we still have now. Okay, Uh, just I wanted to clarify on that bit. Uh, So uh, what further resources can we offer to the listeners who want to find out more about this? We'll have a link to Roger Lear's book, Casebook Alien Implants, uh, which is available on at Amazon. Also, he had another documentary we really didn't talk about called The Scientific Study of Alien Implants, and we'll have a link to that. Also, Jeremy Corbell's documentary, Patient 17, Roger Lear's magazine article that we quoted from. Then we'll have links from Wikipedia to Alien Implants and about Roger Lear himself. There's an archive of Roger Lear's website, which is no longer active since he's no longer with us. Also, we'll have a link to Daryl Sims's website. I'll have a link to the Podiatric Board decision on Dr. Lear, articles on scalar waves, the CIA's Acoustic Kitty Project, the CIA's Remote Controlled Dog Project, Pet Pace's Smart Sensing Dog Collar, <laughs> and an article on Invisible Pet Fences. Uh, if you go on YouTube, you can find uh, human beings testing the pet invisible pet fences on themselves. It's quite oh, amusing. <laughs> Alcohol <laughs> is usually involved. <laughs> ah. So uh, let's uh, move on to talk about uh, some of this mysterious feedback, especially the because you, you teased us earlier on this, uh, Jimmy, uh, for an A-tip update. First one comes from Foster on Facebook, who says, great episode. The name of the mysterious doctor, Salvatore Pais, is intriguing. Isn't that Italian slash Spanish for save the country? Well, it sort of kind of is. It's not exactly. I mean, it doesn't match up exactly. uh, But, uh, you know, Salvatore Salvatore is, you know, based on the word for savior and Pais in Spanish does mean country. So his name could mean savior of the country, which would be ironic at least and could be <laughs> code it, just just to refresh people's memory this is the mysterious doctor who supposedly come up with all this wonder technology that would do amazing things for America's defenses and so to have that guy really be named Salvatore Pais or sort of savior of the country uh, that would at least be ironic and it could be a badly designed legend Right. Um, to protect someone's real identity or int- or it could be entirely made up. But, yeah, it, it can be seen kind of sort of as meaning that. Yeah, it would be a bit on the nose, I think. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, Graciano Mendoza on YouTube writes, question, Jimmy and Dom, just wondering why all of these seem to concern only the U.S., we have more than 160 countries all over the world. Seems like these UAP happenings only concern the U.S. Odd. Actually, UFO sightings are reported all over the place, not just in the U.S. We here on this episode may tend to mention the U.S. ones a little bit more because they're more directly. We're based in the U.S. here and both Dom and I live in the U.S. And so we know more about what's being reported in the U.S. And also we're both English speakers. We don't have access or I don't have access to original language documents from elsewhere in the world. Even if I had them, I couldn't read them. So there is a greater selection of ones connected with the U.S., but actually UFO studies and sightings are happening all over the world, and some governments have released their UFO files, including Brazil. 
And thus, uh, just recently, we had an episode on UFO encounters in Brazil. So it's not just the U.S., it's just that on this show, for reasons, we tend to know more and be able to report more about the ones that are in English and connected with the U.S. Although we'll also be talking about ones elsewhere, like I'm sure at some point we'll have an episode on the famous Rendlesham Forest uh, encounter that occurred in the U.K. And that TV series, Unidentified, which it, it was by the people behind the A-Tip stuff, that they talked about incidents in the U.K. and in Italy. Uh, mm-hmm. That that were part of that, and in so, Mexico, and in that's right, in New Mexico. So yeah, that we like you said, we we're 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 U.S. based and English speaking. So Dan on Facebook writes regarding the 2004 Tic Tac incident, there were two videos apparently recorded at the same time frame. According to some researchers, the two videos were not recorded at the same time, but in different years. The UFO seen in the incident is nothing more than a drone and its movements are an artifact of the gimbal camera system. So this is a claim that has been made by various individuals seeking to provide a natural explanation for the Tic Tac footage. Uh, The claim is because at the end of the Tic Tac footage, the object seems to move, accelerate very rapidly out of frame. And the claim is that that's because the pilot of the aircraft that was filming it banked And so the object really isn't moving any faster than it was. It's just he's turning his own plane away from the object. And that's what makes it seem to suddenly accelerate out of frame. Well, just this week, an interview was released with the pilot who took that footage. Now, you may remember from our previous episodes, we discussed a pilot named Dave Fravor who was involved in this incident, but he's not the one that took that footage. That individual is previously anonymous. It hadn't released his identity to the public, but he has now. His name is Chad Underwood, and he gave an interview in which he was specifically asked about this possibility. Did you bank the plane, and is that what caused it to seem to zoom out of frame? And he said, no, it did that on its own. He was not moving his plane in a way that would explain what we see in the video footage. So we'll have a link to that in uh, Mysterious Headlines so you can read it for yourself. And, you know, David Fravor and, and these other pilots, the Fravor is the command, was the commander of the squadron. These guys know how their systems work. They would, they, you know, they, they would... <laughs> yeah. They, they would point out that, that that's what's happening. So otherwise they'd be being intentionally dishonest and knowing that they would be called out on it. Uh, anyway, so, yeah. So uh, that brings us to our headlines, Jimmy. You mentioned one of our mysterious headlines, this interview. Uh, what, what else do we what do you have? We'll have a link to Navy pilot who took Tic Tac footage speaks. Uh, we'll have a link to that also. And we have kind of a government aerospace tech theme here. Also, dozen mystery objects suddenly popped out of hangars at the Tonopah test range airport. Uh, That's in Nevada, and it's linked to Area 51. It's not the same as Area 51, but all of a sudden, dozen mystery objects out of these hangars. (laughs) (laughs) And we've got aerial footage of them, so you can read about that. Mm. And then a recently retired Air Force general has made some startling claims about advanced space technology, including that we now have the ability to move anyone anywhere on the planet in an hour. Ooh. That would be useful for the new U.S. Space Force. Yeah. (laughs) So, Jimmy, uh, what's our next episode going to be about? Our next episode is going to be about the Mad Emperor Caligula and his connection to Bible prophecy. 
Interesting. All right. So, so from advanced space technology and aliens to uh, the ancient Rome and, and Klinger, that's what this this the podcast is like, folks. It, just, it takes you all over the place, and that's awesome. So uh, that's it from us this week. What do you think about alien implants and what Jimmy had to say about them? You can let us know by visiting sqpn.com slash mysterious or the Jimmy Akins Mysterious World Facebook page. You can send us an email to mysterious at sqpn.com or send a tweet to at mys underscore world with the hashtag of mysterious feedback. Uh, please, folks, if you can, we'd really appreciate it if you'd share the podcast with your friends, write a review in Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts, and help us grow this community of listeners and reach reach more people. And frankly, the, this podcast gets better the more people we have listening because we get contributions, we get people send leads to information. Uh, so it's really great. And if you haven't already, please do go to sqpn.com slash give. Uh, don't forget to do that and become a patron because we do need your help to close the gap financially so that we can keep making these podcasts. Excellent. And if you can find links to Jimmy's resources from our discussion and the links to the mysterious headlines on our show notes at sqpn.com slash mysterious. Until next time, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Tom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World on StarQuest. <laughs>